Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 23 of Inferno, and this is, believe it or not, going to be our penultimate discussion of Inferno. We are getting down into the very depths of the world, uh, indeed down to the very bottom-most point in creation, which is the center of the world. Um, the center of the world, of course, is how they, what they, uh, this is an important thing conceptually to keep in mind um, that although Dante knows perfectly well, uh, as we can already see, but as uh, we certainly, certainly shall be revealed next week, um, as Dante knows perfectly well that the world is spherical and how gravitation works, um, yet the center of the earth is the very center of all of um the cosmos, basically. And um, there's some assumptions that modern people make. Um, people assume that because the medievals saw the world as the center of the universe, that they thought that that like that modern people think that that mean that means that the medieval people thought that the world was like super special um, and a wonderful, wonderful place because it was at the center of the, the center meant something very different to them. Um, God is on the outside, like heaven is out here, right? Uh, the center of the world is as far from God as it is possible to go. It is, as we will see, where Satan himself is confined. Uh, the innermost parts of the world are down to the very, like, lowest dregs of the, uh, you know, the garbage dump, spiritual garbage dump of the universe. Um, and the rest of the earth, therefore, like the surface of the earth where you and I live, is only one small step above that. Um, if anything, um, if the geocentric universe said anything um, about the uh, about the position they felt that the earth held uh, within like the hierarchy of the cosmos, it was exactly the opposite one uh, that modern people tend to associate with it. Um, uh, anyway, as we'll see more clearly as Dante begins to attempt to embark on this last thing. But first, he's got to get there. There's one more cliff he has to get down, right? Uh, and we're going to begin with that today. Um, uh, first, just one last quick announcement. Just a reminder that Mythmoot is coming up. Uh, the Mythmoot, um, you should have, if you've signed up already for Moot Hub prior to this, you should have received uh, the upgrade email with uh, upgrade links um, so that you could upgrade to in person if you wanted to, although of course, again, Moot Hub uh, will still be happening. We're going to be uh, trying as hard as we can to have as thorough a hybrid experience uh, here uh, as we can do, which I'm really excited about. But I'm really excited about having it available uh, for in-person meetings, too. Uh, this is something that I am... I been looking forward to for quite some time. So I'm very excited about that. Um, and of course, you can find all the normal registration links uh, for in-person registration, for online registration. Um, you can find all those uh, at signumuniversity.org slash mythmoot. Um, all the stuff that you need there. Um, and uh, the uh, so several people have been asking about the schedule. The schedule is coming out soon. Uh, expect news about the schedule very soon. Um, um, I don't know exactly when, but it shall come uh, like a thief in the knife, like a thief in the night, and very quickly, um, uh, very soon from now, as I have been led to understand. Um, but okay, so. Um, 
let us jump back into the text. We were just about to leave the circle of fraud. Um, and the last, the thing that I saved for this time uh, was the very last scene, which I think is very tantalizing. I think it's, uh, it's very odd. Um, I don't know about you, but I have been finding, I have been feeling that Dante's poem has been getting odder and odder as we go down. Not that it's just getting stranger in the sense of like more bizarre descriptions or things like that, but the sort of role of the Dan of Dante and Virgil himself as well. Um, that, um, that, 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 both of them, their roles, their characters, their perspectives, their relationship with what's going on around them um, has, in my mind, been getting stranger and stranger uh, as we've moved forward. Definitely curiouser and curiouser, David. Um, and I'm still not quite sure what to do with that. Of course, I'm running out of time to draw conclusions, but there's still a little bit more data that we need to draw. Um, I want to maybe come back to this. Well... We certainly need to come back to this next week since, as I say, that's going to be it. We're going to finish next week. Um, but uh, let's, uh, let's, let's go on back to the very end of Canto 30 here. Um, and he was uh, listening to, remember, Sinon the Greek, uh, who, uh, you know, the, great, the famous liar, the bunch of liars and folks. Um, uh, we had a whole bunch of miscellaneous fraudulent persons kind of chucked in together. We got alchemists, we have liars, um, uh, all kinds of folks there in, uh, uh, in the last pouch of the Malabolgia. I was intent on listening to them when this was what my master said. If you insist on looking more, I'll quarrel with you. And when I heard him speak so angrily, I turned around to him with shame so great that it still stirs within my memory. Even as one who dreams that he is harmed and dreaming, wishes he were dreaming, thus desiring that which is, as if it were not. So I became within my speechlessness. I wanted to excuse myself, and did excuse myself, although I knew it not. Less shame would wash away a greater fault than was your fault, my master said to me. Therefore, release yourself from all remorse and see that I am always at your side, should it so happen, once again, that fortune brings you where men would quarrel in this fashion. I want to hear, to want to hear such bickering is base. Okay. Um, interesting. Okay, so Dante gets... The, the, and this is the end, right? This is the end of Canto 30. Uh, this is the end of their time in the Malabolgia. Not quite in a sense in that, uh, you know, Canto 31 is going to be about their transport down. So they're still going to be on the same level. But this is the end of their interaction interactions with the shades of the folks there in the Eighth Circle in Malabolgia. Um, and we find Dante having to be dragged away from them. Right. You know, he's there like watching and listening with great interest as they quarrel with each other and beat on each other and things. And he's he's there, you know, taking notes um, until Virgil has to yell at him. If you insist on looking more, I'll quarrel with you. Um, now, Virgil forgives him because of the shame that he shows. Right. Um, the shame that he shows. Interesting. Devorah says this part was 
kind of convicting, actually. Yeah. Uh, uh, to want to hear such bickering is based. Devore, did you catch yourself enjoying yourself listening to these debates, right? And then find yourself startled like Dante was uh, with Virgil's rebuke and saying, oh, yeah, right. I'm not, I'm the, this is I'm not supposed to be. I'm not I'm not supposed to be enjoying this. Right. Um, to some extent. But of course, it's it's interesting, isn't it? I mean. What what position does this put us as readers in? Right. As we're going along with Dante and we, too, are being drawn in by the uh, the descriptions that he's giving us and the accounts that he's relating um, as he is lingering and watching and looking and listening and interviewing these people. Of course, we're right there along with him um, listening. And, um, you know, it's. I don't know. Um, I wonder, Devora, what kind of position that we're supposed to we're supposed to have um, here. Um, is there. Is Virgil's rebuke in some sense intended for us? I could imagine that, right? I can imagine that. I mean, remember back when Dante was um, really enjoying seeing Filippo Argenti soused in the in the broth, right? Um, back up in the, um, what was it? Back up in sticks, wasn't it? With the wrathful and the sullen. Um, and, um, and, and it was really uncomfortable. It was really like how pleased he was to see him down there, how much he was enjoying what. Now that was a little personal, right? It's like he was he was enjoying seeing that man in particular suffer. Um, and, you know, apparently Dante had some reason uh, for that, but still it was uncomfortable. Um, but yeah, like the kind of, where does it, where does the story, where does this poem, where does the experience of reading this poem put us? Where, where should we be? Um, as we receive this now, like Dante's been given this dispensation, right? He's been given this special grace uh, to come down and receive this tour, um, you know, of the afterlife. This is what, you know, we've been told from the beginning. And we've, we're also told one of the initial framework, excuse me, of this whole thing, one of the initial frameworks was that this was going to be a journey of salvation for him himself. He was not in a good place. Right. He was lost in a dark wood and being and having these uh, allegorical beasts, which seemed associated with various vices, um, closing in on him. Right. I mean, he was um, he was not in a good place. And then Virgil comes. Right. Virgil comes and rescues him. Virgil, who was uh, sent uh, by Beatrice. Right. We got that whole chain right all the way down from the Virgin Mary through St. Lucia to Beatrice to Virgil uh, sent to go help Dante and to bring him along. Right. And of course, the big picture is going to be from the dark wandering lost in the dark forest in Canto One of Inferno all the way to beholding the beatific vision of the face of God in the last Canto of Paradiso. Spoilers. Um, that's what's at the top of heaven. Um, but um, so again, this the whole thing maps onto on, you know, one kind of allegorical level uh, of the story would seem to be um, Dante, Dante as Dante, but also Dante as every man in some sense, like this journey of this journey of salvation. Um, and so, Devore, I think it's really interesting thinking about what, where, where are we? To what extent are we meant to be involved in that? Um, and 
what kind of responses does Dante, the the speaker, right? Dante, the pilgrim, have. Um, what kind of reactions are we supposed to have with that? You know, where are we being taught at his expense, right? By seeing, you know, the folly, by seeing the, the um, you know, sort of questionable perspective of Dante himself. Is this meant to be instruction for us? Um, as is so often the case with, you know, the bumbling uh, of the you know, protagonists of morality plays, right? They rarely do a great job, right? That's it's kind of their job as characters uh, to illustrate the, all the moral screw-ups, right? Which we can relate to. And Devor, as you say, be convicted by, right? Um, so I'm wondering, I'm wondering if, is, if, if, if you're not really kind of onto something there, Devor, like if, if your, your sense of feeling a little bit convicted in this moment is a very discerning um, uh, reaction, I think, perhaps on your part, uh, very sensitive to the kind of allegory uh, that Dante's writing. And it leads me back to my big question about like, what is the status of Virgil and Dante? Um, as characters here, how are we supposed to be relating to them? How uncomfortable are we supposed to be um, with with how they are? But as I say, we will um, uh, will will come back to that. Um, and yeah, Gerald, I agree. Dante does accurately capture the human condition. People are still like that both ways, right? Both both the quarreling people are still like that, right? Like the sinners that we see, and also like the people who enjoy watching and listening to the uh, uh, to that, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, now, Stephen, I'm glad you brought that up. Stephen is wanting to think about this dreaming business. So let's 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 look at that a little more closely here. Just this is a this is a metaphor uh, or simile which takes a while to parse out, right? Um, even as one who dreams that he is harmed and dreaming wishes he were dreaming. So right, okay, so you're having a dream, and in this dream you receive some kind of like injury or something, right? Like, so you're having a dream and in your dream, like your arm gets ripped off, right? Um, and then you're looking at the stump of your arm, right? In the dream and being like, oh, I hope this is a dream, <laughs> right? I hope I could just wake up from this experience, thus desiring that which is, right? So the dreamer wishes that he were dreaming to escape from the nightmare that he's having, and desiring that, he desires that which really is. He is, in fact, dreaming, right? As if it were not. So he's, he's longing for this to be a dream. It is a dream, right? But he's longing for that which is as if it were not, right? It's like at the, in that moment in, within the nightmare, it's like if, if, it were the, if this were just a dream, it's like a wish fulfillment, right? Um, but it's, in fact, what it really is. So I became within my speechlessness. I wanted to excuse myself and did excuse myself, although I knew it not. Okay, so I can follow the first part. It's the latter part that I have trouble with. So, um, so let, me, let, me, let me try to follow this again. Okay. Um, so I became within my speechlessness. I wanted to excuse myself and did excuse myself, although I knew it not. So his desire for self-excuse is like the dreamer's desire that he's having a dream, which is right. So he w wishes it. You, you, you're, you're in a nightmare and you wish it were a dream. And you're right. It is a dream. You have already gotten your wish, even though you're wishing for it as if it's something that isn't right. But um, but it but but it really is. So he wants to excuse himself 
And in wanting to excuse himself, he's wanting that which really is. Like, he has excused himself. He doesn't know that he's excusing, just like the dreamer doesn't know that he's really dreaming. So he doesn't know that he's excused himself. So the desire... Hmm. I would have said, had he just talked without the simile about excusing himself, I would have thought that he meant the desire to excuse himself was the excuse itself or something like that. Right. But that doesn't seem to map directly onto the dreaming business. Um, you want that which is as if it were not. Right. Um, so his desire to excuse himself, he wants to excuse himself as if it were not, um, uh, yeah, exactly, Stephen. The mere fact that he was so ashamed had already excused him. Yes. So his ex- just as the dream is a, was a dream the whole time, right? He had been excused the whole time. Just his shame-faced reaction excused him from the get-go, right? And his desire for excuse was like the dreamer's desire that it be a dream. Uh uh wishing, desiring that which is as if it were not. Okay. Right. Now, Stephen adds that to make this more complicated, Dante is dreaming, right? At the time he says this is a dream vision, the whole thing, right? So um, uh, that's kind of a fun comparison to make. From I mean, it's like the simile, which is also itself kind of true, right? Um which adds this whole, like, new surreal dimension to that particular simile. Um, just as the dreamer doesn't realize that he's dreaming, though he hopes it might be true, um, so he doesn't know that he's excused himself until Virgil tells him, less shame would wash away a greater fault than was your fault. Right? So his own shame has washed it away, and his shame is so great it would have washed away something much worse than he did. Right. Release yourself from all remorse and see that I am always at your side. Should it so happen once again that fortune brings you where men quarrel in this fashion to want to hear such bickering is base. So if you find yourself in this position again, in the unlikely event that you should find yourself in hell uh, near the souls of people who just don't get along with each other, I think that's likely to happen. Um as, as as we'll see <laughs> in some rather emphatic ways uh, in Canto 32, um, should we be so fortunate as to get there? Um, then, yeah, um, he should remember that Virgil is there to support him. So here we have Virgil in the mode, once again, of, um, of guide, right? Um, uh, of, of, um, um, moral guide, right? Um, moral, and not just guide, but like resource, right? Um, should you should you find this desire welling up within you to listen to such bickering again? Um, then um, just remember that I'm I'm here, I'm here, I'm always at your side. P.S. To want to hear such bickering is base. And yes, you are, um, Leanne and Stephen are both thinking that this warning, um, 
should be uh, uh, above pretty much every comment section <laughs> on the internet. Um, to want to hear such bickering is base. Remember that, everyone. Um, when you uh, feel that lure to <laughs> read the comments at the bottom of the article. Um, but um, the reassertion of Virgil's role as moral guide. And not, again, not, not only guide. I, let me see if I can point to what I'm trying to say beyond guide there. Because guide merely suggests that he's there to lead you. Like, go this way. Like, like he's an advisor or something. He's more than an advisor. He's a resource. Right? I am here for you. I will help you. Um, not just tell you where to go, not just point you in the right direction, but I will bring you. And we've seen Virgil doing it. Remember all those images? Virgil carrying Dante in his arms, Virgil, sh you know, sheltering Dante from Gerion's tail, Dante, Virgil shielding Dante's eyes, right? Very much more active um, than a mere guide. Um, and yet, this brings me back to the question of sort of the moral status of Dante and Virgil both um, as we continue to go through. But so let's see how that plays out in the next stanza. We turned our backs on that dismal valley by climbing up the bank that girdles it. We made our way across without a word. So remember, each pouch, you know, has had the walls on either side, right? So they've been down within the tenth uh, circle, but the cliff doesn't just, it's not just like the tenth circle and then it drops off. It goes back up again and then drops off, right? So there's a little little inner plateau, right, along the inside of the, uh, the eighth circle. We made our way across without a word. Here it was less than night and less than day, so that my sight could only move ahead slightly. What an Interesting way of saying it. My sight could only move ahead slightly. But then I heard a bugle blast, so strong it would have made a thunderclap seem faint. At this my eyes, which doubled back upon their path, turned fully toward one place. Not even Roland's horn, which followed on the sad defeat when Charlemagne had lost his holy army, was as dread as this. I'd only turned my head there briefly, when I seemed to make out many high towers. Then I asked him, Master, tell me, What's this city? And he to me, It is because you try to penetrate from far into these shadows that you have formed such faulty images. When you have reached that place, you shall see clearly how much the distance has deceived your sense, and therefore let this spur you on your way. Okay, so once again, and now we've had this before, right? Um, uh, we've had this before. Um, that uh, this business about sight, right, and the inability to see. Um, remember, we got a bunch of this uh, back in the seventh circle, right, when we were heading out onto the plains of fire. Um, and um, yeah, David, you're absolutely right that the sight could only move ahead it has to come from the idea that eyes project vision rays outward. Yes, absolutely. People in the Middle Ages understood vision as being rays which emerged from the eyes. Um, and almost every single metaphor we use to describe sight still holds that idea. In fact, it's, um, uh, you know, like you look out a window, right? We, none of, I mean, we believe scientifically, right? We believe that vision is a product of light entering our eye, that our eyes are passive, right? And that light enters into our eyes and forms 
you know, images on our retinas which are interpreted by our brain. So we believe that it's all an in absorbing thing, right? That it's just that we're that our eyes are passive, receiving light from outside. We never, ever, ever talk like that. Ever talk like that. Um, and in fact, I, does anyone ever even think about that? Right? Like, do you stick your head around a corner to let the light come into your? No, you you look around the corner, right? Um, you always, I, you, you always feel like you're seeing out, um, you know, like you're, uh, if, again, if it's dark like this, we're likely still to say things like that. Not in exactly these terms. It's an unusual way to say it. My sight could only move ahead slightly is a strange way to say it. Um, but, um, but everything, even down to things like visibility range, right? Um, you know, to say that like the, you know, the visibility range is a hundred feet. Uh, you know, it still conveys the idea that, like, your sight beams can penetrate out to 100 feet, but no further. Um, you know, how far I can see, right? Nobody says, like, from how far away the photons are coming into my head, right? Like, that's that's not at all how we say it. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's still very very much uh, and and yes and uh, uh, Bruce is remembering Gollum uh, of course um, and um, yes yes uh, the 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 light which is emitted by Gollum's eyes uh, which can be seen from behind his head as Bilbo shows when he's following him um, he can see the light from his eyes illuminating the uh, tunnel in front of him when he's following him up uh, in book in chapter five of the Hobbit um, yeah yeah no the those um, that is a, a sort of mem- now like the glowing of eyes in Tolkien. That's a whole other thing. Right. And not a topic for tonight. But um, uh, lots of people's eyes glows glow for various reasons in Tolkien, which seems to have various kinds of quasi symbolical significance. But um, but yes, is it also a memory of this idea that, you know, uh, that the gaze is something which emerges from your head in which, as I say, we may have said we, we may say that we don't think about it that way anymore, but we absolutely do. I mean, literally every... I Can anybody think of any example of a metaphor that we use about sight, like when we just describe the act of looking, um, that doesn't imply that our sight is active, um, rather than merely passive, like merely receiving light? I mean, there's, there's, there's very, very few things that we say um, that, uh, that, that suggest that. Um, yeah, Stephen, exactly. Stephen says, just as we still talk about sunrise and sunset, uh, despite not being geocentric. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, no, because, I mean, the medievals are obviously correct. I mean, the sun does go around the earth. You can see it. We see it every day, right? It's obvious. Like, there it is, lapping us on a daily basis, right? Now, you can say, if you like, that, like, from an outside perspective, it looks different. Sure, of course, lots of things look different from the outside. But when you're standing on planet Earth, what do you see? The sun going around and around and around. That's what it does, right? Uh, only a fool would say otherwise. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, yeah, it's, uh, so yes, but, but I agree, David, it, there's no question. Dante is, uh, um, we might be kind of torn, uh, uh, in our own, uh, speaking about sight, but very, um, um, Dante was, Dante was not right. Um, but this idea, nevertheless, of his sight, only moving ahead of him slightly, right? So your sight goes out before you. His sight is barely in front of him, right? He can't see very much at all. 
um, it was less than night and less than day. So he's coming into this. It's a, it's a neither one nor the other space, right? It's a, it's a, a I don't want to say a boundary space because a boundary is, well, it's not like this. This is an in-between state, right? Um, it's like dusk or maybe like dawn. Um, but it's, it's dim in any case. Notice he doesn't suggest that it's like foggy, like there's anything impeding his sight. Um, there was like mist and stuff before back up in, um, in, uh, uh, in what the seventh circle. Um, and we're not, we're not given anything here. Um, but then he hears a blast, right? Um, he hears a blast, um, a blast of a horn, a bugle blast. And I too, Arthur, am hoping that this isn't a horn like the one that we heard in Canto 22. Um, in fact, we're told it's like Roland's horn. Um, anybody remember? Anyone know the song of Roland? Anybody know what song of Roland quiz, right? You weren't expecting that. Um, anybody remember what's important about Roland's horn blast? Roland's horn blast? Anybody? Yes, the Oliphant. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, the horn does burst, I believe, yes. But something else bursts, too. Anybody remember what else bursts? Um, answer, Roland's brain. Uh, yes, exactly. Gerald got it. Roland's head. Roland's brain bursts. Yeah, he um, uh, deals himself his own death blow with the blow. He blows the horn so hard, calling for Charlemagne to return um, when the rear guard, which Roland is holding, um, is um, uh, is lost through the betrayal of Ganelon, who we meet. Well, we're told about it. We don't meet him. But we're told that he's there uh, in uh, the first zone of the Ninth Circle down there. Um, but, of course, this is one of those things like he's not overcome by any enemy. Like, no enemy kills him. Um, he dies as a consequence of his own action. This is often... This is not unknown uh, among uh, heroic uh, uh, cycles in uh, in the Middle Ages. Um, and... Um, yeah, yeah. So Roland, uh, Roland blows the horn, and he blows it so hard that he actually bursts open his brain. It's like he has a, an aneurysm, but he, he 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 can keep going, right? So he keeps going and he keeps fighting until Charlemagne arrives, and then he then he dies, right? He succumbs uh, to like the busted brain that he suffers as a result of blowing the horn so hard. Um, uh, so. Uh, this is a cautionary tale, uh, right? A horn safety message. Um, no, that's actually not the message at all. Um, but anyhow, so that's Roland's horn. So uh, Roland's horn, which followed on the sad defeat when Charlemagne had lost his holy army. Um, now, of course, in the Song of Roland, Roland's desperate rearguard action still saves Charlemagne's whole army, though Roland's you know, rearguard is, is, is lost. Um, but, um, 
Not even Roland's horn was as dread as the horn that he hears. Um, and I do think, I do think that this concept of this is the horn which signals death, self-destructive death. Um, I think that that is something that is meant to be associated here um, with this sound that he hears. I'd only turned my head there briefly when I seemed to make out many high towers and I asked him, Master, tell me what's this city? So he sees the towers in the distance and thinks there's a city in the distance. It is because you try to penetrate from far into these shadows that you have formed such faulty images. You're not understanding what you're seeing because you're trying to see it from far away. Um, and it's covered by shadows. So we have Dante's inability. His sight is only going a little bit in front of him. His desire to understand what he sees. His clear hearing of the blast of this horn. And yet his failure to understand, to interpret correctly that which his um, sight does make out here. Um, and yes, Bruce, uh, if uh, Roland's horn makes you think of Boromir's horn, you're absolutely right about that. There are certainly are echoes of Roland's horn uh, in Boromir's horn. Completely. Um, yeah. And Stephen, you're right. Not only had he seen a city higher up, but when he saw a city, it looked just like this. Remember the towers? There was all that talk about the towers, right? And it was compared to these other towers of this other Italian city, right? So he sees another set of... And remember also that those sets of towers, the, 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 the sets of towers in the city was right at the boundary. He knows he's coming up on the boundary. He knows that that was the last pouch. So he's looking for the boundary of the ninth circle. And he sees these towers, which, again, that's when, where he saw towers before, was in this walled city, uh, which encircled the seventh circle, right? It was between sixth and seventh. Um, so, yeah, totally reasonable. Totally reasonable. And yet he gets not rebuked, corrected, right? You can't, you don't understand what you're seeing. Um, but I think that it's uh, an important mistake that he's, that he's making. Yes, David is also remembering, of course, the blast on his horn, uh, Theoden's blast on his horn, uh, which burst the horn asunder. Yes, yes, absolutely. There's a robust tradition of important and, but also kind of disastrous uh, horn blasts, especially by people about to die in battles. Yeah, yeah, that, um, spoilers, that happens. Exactly. Um, then lovingly he took me by the hand and said, Before we have moved farther on, so the fact may seem less strange to you, I'd have you know that those are not towers, but giants. And from the navel downward, all of them are in the central pit at the embankment. So he's going to, he's like, let me give you the spoilers first. Um, that it may. Sorry, I'm having. What is wrong with you? You are having problems, Siri. What? <laughs> I keep forgetting to turn uh, Siri off. I have no idea what set her off there. Um, but um, anyway, <laughs> whatever. Um, Stephen says it's kind of a it's kind of a reverse Don Quixote here. Um, instead of mistaking buildings 
for giants. He's mistaking giants for buildings. Um, Arthur wants to know, are these the giants that were in the earth uh, from early Genesis, the Nephilim? Yeah, they are, Arthur. You'll see, we'll, we'll see. That's precisely who this is, um, at least in part. At least some of them. Um, yeah, yeah. No, that's, uh, that's, that's just who's here. Um, Virgil doesn't want him to be, to find it too strange, right? Doesn't want him to be, like he wants to ease him into this fact, right? You thought that was a city. It's not a city. Those aren't towers. Those are giants. And from the navel downward, all of them are in the central pit at the embankment. If you're remembering, um, uh, if you're remembering Jill and Eustace uh, on the way up into giant country, um, that's also something that likely um, you should be remembering at this moment. Um, okay. So he mistook these giants for a city. That's interesting. Just as whenever mists begin to thin, when gradually vision finds the form that in the vapor that in the vapor thickened air was hidden, so I pierced through the dense and darkened fog. As I drew always nearer to the shore, my error fled from me, my terror grew. For, as on its round wall, Monte Regione is crowned with towers, so there towered here, above the bank that runs around the pit, with half their bulk the terrifying giants, whom Jove still menaces from heaven when he sends his bolts of thunder down upon them. So we're going to get to the Nephilim, Arthur, but we're not there yet. First, we're in classical mythology, right? If it's not the Bible, it's classical mythology, or unless it's both, right? Which, of course, it's going to turn out to be in this case. Um, Stephen, did Lewis ever read Dante? Oh, yeah, definitely. Very definitely. Um, that is known. Um, uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Bruce, once you uh, start thinking about the medieval uh, uh, theory of vision, you 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 see that all over the place. Right. The piercing and the um, the uh, the vision finding. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, OK. So. Why is Dante terrified? Dante is terrified because he is coming up upon the terrifying giants whom Jove still menaces from heaven when he sends his bolts of thunder down upon them. Mythology quiz. Who? What? What are we talking about? What are we talking about here? Who? Who's this? Who's this and why is Dante afraid of them? The, yeah, well, sort of the Titans. Um kind of titans, not exactly titans. Um, so the titans were the parents, like the parental generation, right, of the uh, Olympian gods. Um, um, but afterwards, there's there's a rebellion, right? This, this, it's the famous rebellion moment. Um, and it becomes a very, like, this is a it gets much more treatment in the Middle Ages than it gets in classical mythology, in fact. Um, but uh, medieval allegories really fixated on the rebellion of the giants against the gods. Um, this 
story of the um, uh, the often monstrous gods, like the uh, like uh, uh, Briarius with a hundred arms and hands, um, uh, these 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 monstrous giants um, who on the side of the Titans rebel against the Olympian gods after the, after Zeus and the Olympian gods established their regime. Um, they are, they, they, the Zeus, they attempt to overthrow Zeus. Um, and you know, the Olympian gods hold them off, but you know, it's a near thing. Um, and they get, uh, they get zapped down by Jove's thunderbolts and they end up, uh, imprisoned. Um, but they are one of the most, prominent uh, sort of illusions that you reach for if you want to describe um, rebellion in general. Um, but um, anyway. Yeah, uh, Timothy, I, I agree. I think it's really interesting, right? Dante takes what does become a simile, right? Um, as on its round wall, Monte Regione is crowned with towers, so they're towered here above the bank that runs around the pit with half their bulk, the terrifying giants, right? Um, so he makes it into an epic simile that the giants were, um, uh, cr- you know, the, the walls uh, of Monte Regione are crowned with towers, just like the edge of this cliff is crowned with the top halves of giants, right? Who are standing with their feet at the bottom of the cliffs and that their top halves are standing so far above the cliffs that they look like these towers and the walls. Um, but he doesn't just lead with it, right? He doesn't just lead with this simile. He, um, uh, he starts off with a misperception himself, right? He sees the giants, thinks they are towers, right? Because his sight is, you know, only able to go a little bit ahead, right? His, his, uh, there's some, there's a, there's an inability to pierce here, right? There's these, there are these shadows that his vision, his mortal vision can't pierce. And thus he mistakes in an honest misperception, right? An honest mistake. He doesn't just compare them to towers. He mistakes them for towers and therefore the edge of the wall for a city up ahead in the distance. Um, and then upon seeing them, he then compares them to a city. Um, and I agree. It's much more powerful this way. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, David uh, and uh, Bruce was also remembering uh, one of these guys that we met back in the Seventh Circle, sort of. Um, what was his name? Capanius. Um, Capanius, who was lying on his back blaspheming, right? But remember that Capanius was from the rebellion against Thebes. Uh, he was from the Theban War. Um, was he gigantic? Well, like Dante describes him as gigantic. Um, but he's kind of, he's not the same kind of mythic figure as these sort of, uh, you know, giants from the protean earth, right? From the, from the, the, the original, um, uh, you know, earth before the establishment of, you know, the historical order, um, under the regime of the current gods, um, 
he doesn't reach back quite as far as they do. These guys are a bigger deal. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, one thing that I like about the end part there. Uh, the terrifying giants, <clears throat> whom Jove still menaces from heaven when he sends his bolts of thunder down upon them. Is he afraid of the giants, or is he afraid of standing too close to one of the giants if there's a thunderstorm, right? Um, because, of course, the giants are terrifying, but the giants have been hurled down into prison, right? The giants are being kept here. Um, the giants have lost, uh, and they themselves are being punished uh, for their loss. And by the way, why are they? Where are they? Well, they're in the Ninth Circle, right? They are the border of the Ninth Circle. They are the wall. If the Ninth Circle is a city, they are the towers. They are the walls, right? So there's a sense in which his perception is like a little bit true, right? Um, they are the towers on the wall of the Ninth Circle. Why are they standing in the Ninth Circle? Well, because they were, they were the relatives, right? I mean, it was, it was, Briarius is like the half-brother of Zeus, um, sort of. Well, cousin. But anyway, they're, they're, they're relatives. They're relatives. Um, and they are standing on the, um, on the boundary between fraud and betrayal. It's true. Um, Timothy, Jove is God. Jove is, 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 is God. That was that, that part we saw fairly clearly back in the Capania section, um, that he is using Jove as a way to speak about God. Um, that seems, that seems pretty clear. And I think fairly clear here too. Um, okay. More. Rafael Maya Mechi Zabialmi began to bellow that brute mouth for which no sweeter psalms would be appropriate. And my guide turned to him, O stupid soul, keep to your horn and use that as an outlet when rage or other passion touches you. Look at your neck and you will find the strap that holds it fast. And see, bewildered spirit, how it lies straight across your massive chest. And then to me, he is his own accuser. For this is Nimrod through whose wicked thought one single language cannot serve the world. Leave him alone. Let's not waste time in talk, for every language is to him the same as his to others. No one knows his tongue. So, um, this is the guy who blew the horn. Right? Uh, the guy who blew the horn is Nimrod. Um, we do get giants from those days when there were giants in the world. Um, now, he comes later on, right? Um, what's Nimrod being associated This Old Testament quiz. Old Testament quiz. Who's Nimrod associated with? What's what, what, what are we talking about there? Why don't we understand what he says there in, the, in line 67? The Tower of, ba of Babel, of course. Yes, absolutely. Um, who was, Sarah, as you recall, um, a mighty... Hunter, right? Um, Nimrod was a mighty hunter, and this is why I believe he's got a horn, right? Because he's a mighty hunter, um, and he cannot be understood because he is still under the curse of Babel. That doesn't stop him yelling really loud, right? Um, 
but we can't understand at all what he's saying. Nobody, no one knows his tongue. It's no point in talking to this guy. Right? We're not going to get anything out of him uh, because his language makes no sense. Um, it is through his wicked thought that one single language cannot serve the world. Um, but it was his horn that we heard. Right? That horn, that self, you know, that horn blast associated um, with great sort of physical power, but also with self-destruction. Um, and just as his own desire to elevate himself. Again, he's associated with the building of the Tower of, of Babel explicitly there, through whose wicked thought, right? One single language cannot serve the world. Um yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah. Um, Leanne is wondering if Nimrod doesn't know any language but his own. Why does Virgil bother rebuking him? Is it just for Dante's benefit? That's a wonderful question. Um, every language is to him the same as his to others. Yeah, he can't understand... Virgil says he knows that he can't understand, that Nimrod can't understand him. But you're right, Leanne. He still, Virgil still rebukes him. Oh, stupid soul, keep to your horn and use that as an outlet. Um, the detail that he goes to is a little bit interesting, right? Look at your neck. Yeah, yeah, no, just a little bit. Down. There you go. There's a strap, right? You'll find your horn right there attached to it. Lies straight across your massive chest. Yeah, and then he turns to me and he's like, I'm just messing with him. He can't understand what I'm saying right now, right? Um, which is an interesting thing for Virgil to say. Um, I, I, yeah, I think clearly he is saying this stuff for Dante's benefit. Um, Dante heard the horn blast. Right. And so Virgil is pointing out and describing um, it's it's almost like a very indirect way of doing a, 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 you know, like an audio guide. Right. If you look at his shoulder, you will see the strap that goes down and see right below there is the, the horn that's right across his chest. Right. You'll find that, of course, will be the horn that you just recently heard. Um, you know, so in a sense, that's what Virgil is doing for Dante's benefit here. And yet he's addressing it to Nimrod himself. He's rebuking him, insulting him, really? Oh, stupid soul. Um, keep to your horn. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Now, uh, Nimrod, whose name means rebel. Um, he is, and he is associated with rebellion against God, right? The rebellion of the building of the Tower of Babel, if, you know, the, the Tower of Babylon there. Um, uh, so we have this biblical exemplar of rebellion. And of course, we're going, we, we were already told that who we were going to be meeting were the giants who rebelled against Jove. So we already see this kind of totally... Virgil's not conscious of any, like, there's no contradiction here. There's no self-consciousness about the this conflation, right? Um, Nimrod is essentially 
one of the giants who rebelled against Jove, right? That's obviously just sort of a true, um, a true statement, you know? Um, now, um, um, now let's see, um, what was I going to say? Oh yeah, James, um, I wonder how the medievals explained uh, the many, uh, what to them must have been the many false stories of Jove's many grievous sins. Oh, no, no. No, that's easy, right? Um, those, uh, those stories, the stories of Jove, you know, of Jove's Delta, they, they knew those quite well, right? Um, but of course, th- those, aren't, those aren't about God, right? None, it's a little bit more, we talked about this a while back, and I won't, I won't go over the whole thing, but, uh, but really briefly, um, they, they, Okay, um, the classical pagans have a kind of confused view of the world, but it's not like totally wrong, right? There's a lot that they know about the world. They were super wise, those ancient pagans. Like they knew a lot of stuff, right? And so there was much that they perceived, but there was much that was also corrupted in the stories that they told. So they told all of these scandalous stories about the gods, and that is clearly not true of God or 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 even by and large uh, of the. Um, uh, you know, of, of other like, you know, angelic figures or something like that. They did have a perception about how the world worked and it did map much more uh, directly than, you know, m- most modern people think uh, onto the world itself. Um, but they didn't, it's like their, their stories, their mythological stories about the, you know, um, adulterous capers of the gods. Um, that's, that's not true. But of course, even they didn't think they were true. Right. I mean, uh, ask Plato what he thought about those mythological stories and he'll tell you. Right. Um, so even. Um, th- yeah, it's um, that's that's not a, again, it's not that they don't the identification doesn't exactly work that way. Right. It's like they that which they identified and worshipped as Jove was their understanding. Right. Um, they're partial understanding of how things really worked, right? Um, the fact that they perceived that there was one who was king among all the gods and uh, the ruler of the whole cosmos, like, they they were right about that, right? Um, they didn't understand how it all worked and how it all fit together, but they had a, they had a, they had a, you know, they had a glimmering. Um, yes, I do believe, Jocelyn, that he... Dante is, or sorry, Virgil there is using stupid uh, in not the modern sense of just having a low intelligence score, um, but of being sort of slow uh, and sluggish. Um, Yes, yes. Uh, Stupid as in like one in a stupor, right? Which is literally what the word means. That's the adjectival form of the noun stupor. Um, So um, anyway, yeah, yeah. I think so, Sarah. Exactly. That's a really good way to say it, Sarah, um, that he's like bewildered. Right. Um, He's still like dazed from the whole, uh, you know, division of languages experience. Right. Um, He. um, Yes. Yes. Okay. so Nimrod. Um, Tower of what, what were what was Nimrod's goal? What did Nimrod try to do? Why did he build the Tower of Babel? Babel, Babel, whichever you want to call it. Yeah, he wanted to. He want. He, he wanted to reach the heavens, right? 
this was um this is Genesis chapter eleven, of course, uh, that he wanted to you know like they they were like hey we can we can get together and um, we can you know get up as high as God now because we've like invented bricks it's pretty cool um, so we can get up as high as God where is he where's 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 Nimrod currently standing <laughs> at the bottom right his feet are planted at the very lowest point. Um, there is a there is a complete inversion of the Tower of Babel here, right? Um, and instead of building a big, huge ziggurat which reaches all the way up to heaven, he's at the bottom of like an inverted ziggurat, right? Uh, which goes all the way, all the way down uh, to the bottom. And Bruce, yes, exactly about as far from God as he can get now, instead of being up uh, near to God or above God. Exactly. Exactly. So, okay. Um, this, um, that works, right? That that all kind of works together. But I, what does this have to do with the eighth and ninth circle? And, and why are we coming up here? We still have to figure this out. Okay. Um, Dante, having gotten over his terror, now has a request to make of Virgil. And I to him, if it is possible, I'd like my eyes to have experience of the enormous one, Briarius. Right? Briarius is like the most terrifying of all the monstrous, horrible, terrifying gods who rebelled against Jove in the classic myths, right? So uh, so you know, Dante's like, ooh, can I can I can I see Briarius? Right? At which he answered, You shall see Antaeus nearby. He is unfettered and can speak. He'll take us to the bottom of all evil. The one you wish to see lies far beyond and is bound up and just as huge as this one, and even more ferocious in his gaze. No earthquake ever was so violent when called to shake a tower so robust as Ephialtes quick to shake himself. Then I was more afraid of death than ever. That fear would have been quite enough to kill me had I not seen how he was held by chains. So we have this other giant who's all chained up. Right. Uh, not all of them are chained up, but this one is chained up. And apparently Briarius also, who is, in fact, just as enormous as you think he might be, Dante, is um, also chained up. Um, and there's Ephialte shaking himself. Right. Um, no earthquake ever was so violent when called to shake a tower so robust as Ephialtes quick to shake himself. So once again with the tower imagery, right, him shaking himself, writhing in his chains is like a, a super violent earthquake shaking a tower. Then I was more afraid of death than ever. That fear would have been quite enough to kill me had I not seen how he was held by chains. So Dante's terror is uh, resumed, right? He goes from tourist uh, to terrified bystander uh, very, very quickly. Um, these, um, these are not safe giants, right? Um, these are not friendly giants. Um, and, uh, he, um, seems to repent of his request, uh, to go, uh, you know, f meet his favorite gigantic celebrities, <laughs> right? Okay. Never mind. Maybe I'm good, uh, without seeing, uh, Briarius with the hundred hands. Um, yeah. Um, I do think 
that the giants in question here are definitely our first example of those who are being punished in the Ninth Circle. They may loom above it. Um, they may be plainly visible here. You can interact with them and even speak with some of them uh, from the edge of the Eighth Circle. But they clearly belong in the Ninth Circle. Um, it's their rebellion. It's their betrayal, right? Which... Um, uh, their betrayal of their of their relatives, right, and their rebellion against the rightful rule. Well, you know, rightful. When you're talking about the early parts of Greek mythology, is a dubious concept, perhaps. But um, uh, but anyway, those who are ruling, right, the, it is a betrayal of the current rulers. Um, but they're going to go see Antaeus. Antaeus, another one of these giants. And he'll take us to the bottom of all evil. Love that phrase. The bottom of all evil. Um, you know, you, to, you hear like um, detectives wanting to get to the bottom of, of, of things, right? Well, Dante is going to really get to the bottom of things here. Um, yes, so Antaeus can speak, Virgil tells us, Leanne, yep. Yeah, and he's not chained up. So he is... Um, he. He's unlike Nimrod, and he's unlike, um, what's his name? Ephialtes here. He's neither chained nor incapable of communication. Um, and yes, Arthur Briarius is definitely not a tame giant. Definitely not. Um, okay. And we continued on until we reached Antaeus, who, not reckoning his head, stood out above the rock wall, full five L's. O you who lived within the famous valley where Scipio became the heir of glory when Hannibal retreated with his men, who took a thousand lions as your prey, and had you been together with your brothers in their high war, it seems some still believe the sons of earth would have become the victors. Do set us down below where cold shuts in Cochitis, and do not disdain that task. Don't send us on to Titius or Typhon. This man can give you what is longed for here. Therefore, bend down and do not curl your lip. He can still bring you fame within the world, for he is alive and still expects long life, unless grace summon him before his time. Okay, so this is the invocation, right, to Antaeus. Now, it's Virgil talking, though we're not told that super clearly at the beginning, um, right? But the fact that we're now then referring to Dante, the living one in the third person, makes that relatively clear. Um, uh, yeah, so um, Devora asks a wonderful question. How come he has to butter him up? That's a great question, isn't it? Um, he's Virgil, has done a good deal of uh, command issuing before this time, right? Um, you know, uh, basically kind of banking on the authority that has been granted to him, um, you know, by the Virgin Mary via St. Lucia via Beatrice, right? Um, which is how work gets done in heaven anyway. But um, so, yeah, so, but he doesn't play that card. Devorah, right? He doesn't. He bribes him. Offers to bribe him instead. Okay. Um, 
he flatters him first. You know, you lived in this famous valley. You took a thousand lions as your prey. Um, had you been together with your boy, if you didn't miss the battle, like the giants might have won. The sons of Earth, by the way, are the giants, right? That's a that's a frequent way of describing them. Um, the sons of Earth would have been the man if you'd been there, dude. If you'd been there, the giants might have beaten Zeus and the gods. Like that's what a big deal you are. Anyway, um, set us down below, um, and do not disdain that task. Can you please, like? Would you uh, would you mind? Uh, would you mind just just setting us down on that next le- you know that on on the ground down there? Uh, don't send us on to Titius or Typhon as other giants, right? Don't 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 pass the buck here, Antaeus, because there's something in it for you. And he immediately offers to bribe him with Dante's testimony to bribe him with fame. Which we're told here is like this is the coin of the realm of hell, right? I mean, folks in hell can't get much, right? I mean, what do you bribe somebody in eternal torment with? You can't stop the torment, right? Um, there's nothing you can do to change their uh, to change their situation, but. Um, there's nothing you can do to change this situation, but there's one thing you can do. You can bring them fame. Dante can bring them fame. He can go back and write about them in his poem, right? And that's valued. We've seen many people value it, except those who don't want their story told, because it is more to their credit to be forgotten, Right? I find this particularly interesting because this is the, to me, this is the whole heart of it, right? The whole heart of this question that I've been kind of wrestling with, like where exactly do we end up? Where do Virgil and Dante end up? And where do we end up in relationship to them? The fame thing, right? That's been increasingly um, more and more. He has been offering fame to people. People have been demanding fame of him. He and Virgil have been talking about fame and agreeing with each other that fame is awesome um, and apparently a, 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 a super good thing. Uh, now he's bribing one of the rebel giants. Um, Bruce wants to know if Antaeus wasn't part of the rebellion, why is he being punished here with his brothers? I think, I, I don't know. Um, I don't. I don't remember the details of Antaeus's story well enough to Antaeus's story well enough to be able to answer that question really. But I, I believe like he didn't join in. It's not that he like abstained from the rebellion. Um, just that he wasn't, you know, sort of with them there in the, in the battle, um, or was like fighting on his own or something like that. It's a lack of coordination rather than. Uh, a difference in motivation on his part, I believe, is the point. Um, yeah, <laughs> Stephen is saying maybe by abstaining, he betrayed the others. Oh, the irony. Um, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't I don't think so. OK. Okay. 
the open attempt to bribe the giant with fame, right? He can bring you fame, right? Don't you want a little bit of fame, right? Like he's throwing him a cookie or something like that. Um, for he's still alive, alive and still expects long life, unless grace summon him before his time. Unless grace summon him before his time. Unless his, like, saying good things about you is thwarted by grace, then he's going to deliver on his promise to bring you fame within the world. Antaeus, won't that be nice? Right? Um... Yeah. Wait a second. Is Antaeus the dude that Heracles has to kill by holding him up in the air and then he throws him in the ocean? Is that Antaeus? Yeah. Okay. That's the guy. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I didn't give... Yeah, don't get his response. Okay, so Antaeus brings him down, right? We don't get much about Antaeus, right? Does Dante deliver? Does he not deliver on that? I mean, or is Virgil's speech enough? Like, is that the... Does that satisfy the debt that he owes to Antaeus to pay him off with fame? Um... Oh, uh, sorry, Bruce wanted to know... Should grace be capitalized here? That is, is grace, is that like, does that mean God? You know, um, I mean, well, yeah, sort of, but no, not exactly in that way. Um, uh, unless grace summon him, like it would be like God's grace to Dante uh, to like bring him in sooner, basically. Um, so it's not using that as like a synonym for God exactly, but Okay. All right. So again, I to me this attempt to bribe the explicit bribing of the giant seems to me more um uh to make the whole fame thing even more I'm even more uncomfortable than I was on purely Boethian grounds before. But now we're in the ninth circle. <clears throat> Had I the crude and scrannel rhymes to suit the melancholy hole upon which all the other circling crags converge and rest, the juice of my conception would be pressed more fully. <laughs> Love that. But because I feel their lack, I bring myself to speak, yet speak in fear. For it is not a task to take in jest, to show the base of all the universe, nor for a tongue that cries out, Mama, Papa. But may those ladies now sustain my verse who helped Amphion when he walled up Thebes, so that my tale not differ from the fact. Um... <laughs> Jocelyn's response to the juice of his conception being pressed more fully was, ew. Yeah, uh, so, um, he would press the juice of his conception, like his imagination, right? The, the conceit in his mind. He would press it more fully if he had the rhymes to suit the melancholy hole upon which all the other circling crags converge and rest. If he had the rhymes to really fit the ninth circle of hell, then he'd, you know, he'd, uh, he'd squeeze the wine press a little harder, right? But 
you know, since he doesn't, he brings himself to speak, but speak in fear. Um, and yet, the rhymes that he described had either crude and scrannel rhymes. By the way, scrannel is not a word I've ever encountered that I know of in any other circumstance. I had to look it up again. I'm pretty sure I had to look it up the first time I read this translation, and I had to look it up again. Um, It means, like, thin um, uh, and, like, uh, you know, like, sort of thin and screechy. Um, Yeah, so, Stephen... That's exactly the question that I was, you know, it's like uh, like how Bilbo's party guests have to, uh, uh, you know, think Bilbo's words through to, 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 to work it out and see if it comes to a compliment. Right. I'm trying to work this out and see if it comes to humility. Right. Because um, <laughs> in the end, I'm not sure it does. Right. Um, it's possible that what he means is if I could convey like the crudeness and like the scranality, (laughs) whatever that means, uh, of this place. Like if I had, if I could, if I could sufficiently convey that in my rhymes, then I might, you know, really go for broke on this one. But but I just, it, knowing myself incapable of really conveying that, I just have to speak in fear. That would be the humble reading, right? And But that humble reading, Stephen, is undermined by the, the possibility that you raised, right? Because it's the crude rhyme. He, his rhymes aren't crude enough, right? If only I could speak as crudely as would befit the setting that I was... But, yeah, I can't. I just... I... I I wish I were not as good a poet. I really do. You know, if I could, um, if I could make my speech sufficiently base to convey, like how, um, you know, uh, crude and 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 horrible it was, you know, I'd do it. But I just, I can't. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, exactly, Michael. Almost like saying I can't make my rhymes that bad. Like good verse doesn't can't do justice to this, right? And I also wonder since his reference to his rhymes in particular. One thing, if there is one thing that Dante's verse is, it is orderly, right? Um Dante's entire poetic schema, the whole terza rima schema, has been throughout imposing a very strict kind of order, a very pronounced kind of order upon everything that he sees. Now, mind, of course, we've seen God's order imposed on everything, right? Hell is not chaos by any means. It is carefully organized and laid out, as we've seen, uh, point by point all the way through, because this is divine justice, right? This is the orderliness uh, of the divine world that has been. So even these sins, which are themselves rebellious and chaotic, um, are themselves ordered by divine justice. And so, too, 
are the descriptions of them ordered by Dante's rhymes, right? By Dante's scheme. His verses are laid out um, in this very regular and extremely ornate um, pattern, right? Is it that that he's kind of pointing to, right? That like kind of apologizing in a sense that like he can't, he's not going to break his pattern. He's not going to um, drop his rhyme scheme um, in describing, and therefore he knows that he can't accurately convey um, what he saw there down here at the, you know, the, 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 the bottom uh, of all sin, uh, Devorah, as your translation says, or the bottom of all evil. Um, yeah, I wonder. I wonder. But of course, notice the sort of the parallel there between Dante's poem and divine justice, right? Um, so yes, is this an act of humility? I think it's intended as an act of humility. The I bring myself to speak, yet speak in fear suggests that I mean, what he's saying is like, I can barely talk about this. Um, I certainly can't do a marvelous job, right? I can't, um, you know, I, I, I can only press the juice of my conception. It's only so much juice I can get out of this, uh, this part, right? I can only bring myself to speak, yet speak in fear. Um, uh, because I'm not capable. And yet again, Stephen, I do find that kind of like the unhumble version also kind of, uh, kind of seems to, uh, um, seems to work. Um, I love the mama and papa bit. Um, it is not a task to take in jest to show the base of all the universe. And he means base in more than one sense, right? He's at the bottom, not just of the world, but of the whole universe, right? This is the the spiritual nadir of the cosmos that he is standing on right now. That is not something to joke about. Nor for a tongue that cries out, Mama, Papa. Now, I love this invocation of like a child's first words, right? No human tongue, no human tongue who first learned to say mama and papa should be talking about this, right? It is not for human tongues to say. Um, and of course, the way that he could say it's not for human tongues and that would convey the same thing. But of course, by uh, remembering the infant tongue crying out mama and papa, He's recalling, you know, uh, youth and hope and love and affection, um, all of those things which, you know, no, no creature born into that, right? Uh, you know, into that, into a, a relationship with parents and and uh, uh, you know, with that kind of, you know, this that this is this is not the place. Uh, for that kind of thing. Yeah, the innocence of that. Yeah, the contrast between the innocence of that and what they actually see. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> Tarlaniel says so much for Earth being mostly harmless. Yeah, true enough. True enough. Um, 
The final point here. May those ladies now sustain my verse who helped Amphion when he walled up Thebes. So we don't even need to know. Like, the last two lines are not necessary. May those ladies now sustain my verse. Who are we talking about? Right before he even says anything about the ladies, we should know which ladies he's talking about, right? There's really only one set of ladies he could be referring to when he's asking for his verse to be sustained, right? Who's he talking about? Mythology quiz. The muses. Absolutely, the muses. Exactly. He's invoking the muses here. May the muses, may those ladies now sustain my verse. But, of course, the illusion is important, and not just for identification. There are lots of ways to identify the muses. You can identify the muses in a hundred different ways. But he identifies them as those ladies who helped Amphion when he walled up Thebes, so that my tale not differ from the fact. Um, the story of the walling up of Thebes is that the, the muses, like, you know, play music, and the like the blocks of, um, you know, the stone blocks just kind of form themselves uh, into the wall, um, so they help Amphion by basically building the wall for him. So the walls of Thebes are sort of miraculously built um, by the power of the muses. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's the invocation that he makes. Like it's the muses in that context um, whose assistance he calls upon, just as they help to build these walls, right, without human hands. Um, so may they help my poem, right? May they help me in the construction of my poem so that my tale differ not from the fact, right? Um, help me to build these rhymes um, truly and accurately, right? This is nothing to joke about. Uh, to speak yet speak in fear, Right. With the assistance, with divine assistance um, here. Um, of course, I can't help but think it, wall building around a city is a little bit ironic. Doesn't it seem a little bit ironic, given that we just had the giants who are kind of like the towers on the walls of a city, except aren't. Right. Um, it's a little... It's a little odd. Um, <laughs> yes, both Stephen and Arthur are asking if Thebes, therefore, was in fact uh, built with rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like to think it's a reference to the building of Thebes. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um Right, Jocelyn, he is calling on mythological figures, not uh, not on God. But again, that's not... We're comfortable with that. Um, is this blasphemy? Like, is he turning away from the Christian God and seeking, you know, worshipping pagan idols instead? No, no, he's talking about divine aid, right? Again, like with Jove, right... Within the stories of pagan mythology, we find pictures of the truth, 
right? And those pictures of the truth can help us, uh, even in like in speaking of the truth, even like we can invoke them in sim- because they they kind of help us to picture and to understand the truth, um, even though we know that the truth is like it's not literally the muses, right? It's, there's not these girls uh, who you know help strapping young Thebans build walls. That this, but but nevertheless, the story of the muses building the walls of Thebes is a metaphor, right? Is like is a picture that can be used to invoke uh the divine aid. We're we're cool with that generally. Like you can invoke the muses still as a poet without um uh you know without being like guilty of blasphemy or something like that or you know idolatry or or you know um Paganity is pagan. Is there a noun form for like paganness? Pagan. I don't know. <laughs> it's getting late. Before we go, let's let's get into a little bit of a description here um, of the base of the world. I heard this said to me. Watch how you pass. Walk so that you not trample with your souls the heads of your exhausted, wretched brothers. At this I turned and saw in front of me, beneath my feet, a lake that, frozen fast, had lost the look of water and seemed glass. Um, oh, paganism. Yeah, I guess so. It doesn't seem quite right. It doesn't satisfy that particular noun form. Um, but anyway, okay. Uh There's a lake that had lost the look of water and seemed glass. Then I skipped a few lines um, uh, because it was too many for my slide. Uh, But the lines I skipped are describing the thickness of the ice. Like the ice is as thick as thick ice on rivers where the ice gets really thick, such that if you dropped a mountain on it, it would crack the ice. That's how thick this ice is. And as the croaking frog sits with its muzzle above the water... This is another time we've... Didn't we get that with the tar... Right? We, haven't, we, haven't, we, haven't we already done frogs? Um, as the croaking frog sits with its muzzle above the water in the season when the peasant woman often dreams of gleaning, so live it in the ice up to the place where shame can show itself. Up to the place where shame can show itself. The chin? The neck? I think? Where shame can show itself, like where you can blush. I think is what it's talking about. So I believe he's saying, therefore, that their heads are above the water. Were those sad shades whose teeth were chattering with notes like storks? Each kept his... That is, storks clattering their, their beaks. Each kept his face bent downward steadily. Their mouths bore witness to the cold they felt, just as their eyes proclaimed their sorry hearts. I think that they're not necessarily um, the ones that he's describing here are not like in the ice up to their faces like this, like embedded in the ice, um, which would be a little bit more like the frogs poking up, right? Um, because of the whole um, uh, two uh, two things lead me to say the first is the whole the business about them. Um, uh, the shame. Where was the shame? 
bit. I'm losing it. Um, uh, up to the place where shame can show itself. There it is, right? <laughs> why, why could I not see that right there? Um, yeah, but the second thing is that he keeps describing them moving their heads, right? They're bending their heads downward steadily, which, I mean, if your head was like encased in, you know, mostly encased in ice, you couldn't move your head at all. Um, and we'll see people who are encased in ice like that later on. But so these people, I think, are encased like up to the neck, basically. Um, uh Yeah. Okay. Because um, yeah, they do. They do. You. They're bending their. I mean, if you're again, if you're encased with if only your face is sticking up, you can't exactly bend your face downward, can you? I don't think you can. Um, their mouths bore witness to the cold they felt, just as their eyes proclaimed their sorry hearts. Just as so, the cold forces out of their mouths, right? Their chattering teeth. It forces out of their mouths um, the proclamation of the cold that they feel, right? This involuntary response of cold. So too was the sorrow of their hearts apparently similarly involuntarily proclaimed through their eyes. Um, sorrow is a really interesting um uh, uh is the is a very interesting thing to me and arthur that's a wonderful question i don't know i heard this said to me is really weird right i mean he, we've heard him use various you know um circumlocutions uh for virgil right um like you know and then the well of all good wisdom said to me you know or whatever something like that right um I heard this said to me. It was then said that, right? And obviously this must be Virgil, right? Sometimes we've been surprised. Sometimes Dante has given introductions like that only to have it turn out that, um, uh, you know, it wasn't, um, uh, it wasn't Virgil at all. He was overhearing somebody else or something like when, you know, like a disembodied voice, like the gate, right? Back in Canto three, um, the inscription on the gate, which sounds like somebody speaking to him, which might be Virgil or it might be somebody else. Um, and uh, and then, of course, it turns out to be the inscription on the gate. Um, I don't know why he's so indirect about Virgil there. Um, why he disembodies Virgil, depersonalizes Virgil there. Um I don't know. And Devora, I agree. They're clearly not sorry as in repentant. Yes. Yes. Um, I assume sorry in the sense of miserable, right? Um, but yeah, I don't think I understand that word either, exactly what he's suggesting, especially since they don't seem particularly, they certainly don't seem particularly repentant. Uh, when we finally hear them talking. Um, <laughs> sorry, not sorry, <laughs> says Leanne. Yeah, more like that, perhaps. Um, uh, yeah, more like that, perhaps. Um, 
don't trample with your souls the heads of your exhausted, wretched brothers. And Leanne, it is very interesting that Virgil calls them your brothers. I don't remember that language anywhere else. I mean, as in the sense that they're fellow human beings or were fellow human beings, all of the souls that Dante has interacted with have been his brothers. But um, I can't remember Virgil making that kind of connection, right? Don't trample with your souls the heads of your exhausted, wretched brothers. Watch your feet. Watch your feet. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Stephen is wondering, would it even be possible for a soul in hell to be repentant? Um, I say no. Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, I don't think that they can be. Um, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's an entrance qualification. Unrepentantness, I mean. When I looked around a while, my eyes turned toward my feet and saw two locked so close the hair upon their heads had intermingled. Do tell me, you whose chests are pressed so tight, I said. Who are you? They bent back their necks, and when they'd lifted up their faces toward me, their eyes, which wept upon the ground before, shed tears down on their lips until the cold held fast the tears and locked their lids still more. No clamp has ever fastened plank to plank so tightly, and because of this they butted each other like two rams. Such was their fury. Okay, so you've got these two guys pressed together chest to chest. Right? Chest to chest and face to face so that their hair is mingling, is intermingled with each other. Right? Is your hair to have to be a little longer than mine to be intermingled. Uh, but, um, uh, and then, so their their faces were down. Everybody's looking down. Everybody's looking down, right? Their faces are turned down. And then they look up. And when they look up, their tears, which are coming from their mouth, their tears run down their face onto their lips and freeze. So that by looking up and having the tears kind of pooling around their eyes, their eyelids freeze shut. And it's, I think... Is it because of that? Because their eyelids have all frozen up that they start banging their heads against each other? Because their heads are like right there, right? And they're like bang, bang, bang with their heads. Um, uh, I don't think they're locked to the lids of the other guy, Leanne. Um, I think they're locked shut. I think they're locked shut. I think they're because of their continual tears in the cold here. And notice, by the way, um, I love this sort of implication. Like, they're all there with their heads down, right? And they're weeping continually, so continually, and it freezes right away, right? So that you get the sense that, like, the entire frozen landscape is like the frozen tears of the damned that you're walking on, that Dante's walking on here. Um, and that's a really, really powerful image. Um However, brings me back to sorrow. Devora. Tears. Tears are the um in all of the um 
in all of the there were manuals there were manuals for um confession hearing confession like manuals for priests right who were hearing confession um i love confessional manuals it's one of my favorite genres in the middle ages they're really fun well fun from one perspective but um uh like i love the parts where they're like get them to confess their sexual sin but not in too much detail anyway um one of the things that it very famously says in the confessional manuals is uh like pro tip for confessors um if they cry they probably mean it like tears tears are a sign an outward sign of inward contrition um that you like it's the way to prove that you're really sorry for what you did for so it's it's uh, tears are therefore linked very closely with repentance um uh but I agree, this is not, it's not that kind of sorrow, and these are not those kinds of tears. If anything, there's a kind of irony. Arthur, they could be, they could be weeping with fury. They could be tears of fury, in some sense. Um, uh, I, fury is what, you know, they're, they're like two rams, right? Butting at each other in their fury. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Michael says this is still in the manual for primary school teachers, right? Which doubtless are similar in many ways to the manuals for medieval confessors, uh, I think. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. Timothy, yeah, Timothy was thinking uh, like uh, they're sorry, like they're pitiable, not sorry, like they feel sorry, like they feel repentant. Um, uh wretched and then you corrected pitiable to wretched but timothy it's one of my questions again when i say like where are we supposed to be as readers right horrified fearful right like dante's been talking about his fear and how fear is like the appropriate response uh to the ninth circle but how much pity are we supposed to feel um is it okay to feel are we should we feel pity for the damned um this to me is one of the kind of like lingering questions of the whole of the whole thing of the whole poem really um okay last one and then we'll continue next time and while we were advancing toward the center to which all weight is drawn the center toward which all weight is drawn you know the gravitational center of the earth that's what he's talking about right there while we were advancing toward the center to which all weight is drawn, I, shivering in that eternally cold shadow, I know not if it was will or destiny or chance, but as I walked among the heads, I struck my foot hard in the face of one. So, by will, destiny, or chance, I kicked this dude straight in the face. Weeping, he chided then, Why trample me? If you've not come to add to the revenge of Monteperti, why do you molest me? And I, my master, now wait here for me, that I may clear up just one doubt about him. Then you can make me hurry as you will. Hang on a second, Virgil. My master, give me a second. I need to clear up a doubt about him. Then we can hustle along. Right? Dante's curious about this dude. 
that he's just, you know, by destiny, perhaps, or maybe it was good luck, kicked in the face on the way by, right? Um, and that's guy I've been blocking. That dude, right? That Dante is going to be interrogating. I said last one. I didn't mean it. I am alive and can be precious to you if you want fame, was my reply. So the guy's asking who he is, right? Dante's like, hey, I, I'm, I'm alive and I have fame to offer, right? I can be precious to you if you want fame. For I can set your name among my other notes. And he to me, I want the contrary. So go away and do not harass me. Your flattery is useless in this valley. At that, I grabbed him by the scruff and said, you'll have to name yourself to me or else you won't have even one hair left up here. And he to me, though you should strip me bald, I shall not tell you who I am or show it, not if you pound my head a thousand times. His hairs were wound about my hand already, and I had plucked from him more than one tuft while he was barking and his eyes stared down when someone else cried out, What is it, Boca? Isn't the music of your jaws enough for you without your bark? What devil's at you? And now, I said, you traitor bent on evil, I do not need your talk, for I shall carry true news of you, and that will bring you shame. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, what on earth? Right, so Dante's interrogating this guy, right? Tell me who you are. And he's like, no. And he's like, I'm going to pull out all your hair. And he's doing it. Like, he's actually carrying out the hair pulling um, plan. Right? I'm going to pull out all your hair if you don't tell me who you are. And the guy's like, no, never. I won't tell you until the other dude spills the beans. Right? And the other guy names him. And then Dante gloats. Aha! Now I don't need you to tell me who you are because that other guy told me who you are, right? You traitor bent on evil. I shall carry true news of you and that will bring you shame. Ha ha. Right. <laughs> At the exact same time, Leanne says, so much for pity. And Devorah says, so much for brotherhood. Um... Yeah, and Arthur's wondering, shouldn't this land Dante somewhere or other that we've been so far? Yeah, I, I, this is not a good look. This is not a good look. Notice what um, the other dude mistakes him for, right? He, thinks, he assumes he's a demon. Like the other guy with the guys with the pitchforks, right? The Malabranche back there, right? Um, oh, so there's a demon coming around, torment, you know, uh, afflicting us with like further torment. Right. That's Dante. Right. A wandering devil uh, torturing the souls of the damned, I guess. Right. And isn't he kind of carrying on doing that? I shall carry true news of you and that will bring you shame. I mean, OK, like it's that's not wrong. Right. I mean, to tell the truth is not wrong. And 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 his act deserved shame. Right. I mean, he was a traitor and betrayed his people and his relatives. So, OK. Um, but. Um, uh, where does this put Dante? He first he starts with his fame bribe. And then at the end, he's going to inflict shame upon him, right? 
because everybody knows, like, your reputation in the world is what really matters. To, like, souls damned forever. Like, seriously. That will bring you shame? Well, that'll teach you, right? Mr. Already Lodged in Ice for All Eternity. Like, now. Now we'll see, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn up the dial a little bit, right? First by pulling out your hair and then by telling everybody about you and, and, and bringing shame upon you and your descendants, right? And just in case eternal torment hadn't already taught you a lesson, boy, that'll teach you, right? I just, I can't, um, I can't, um, I can't think that this is a good look here, right? Um, this is suggesting to me that what I've been seeing as a kind of moral deterioration on Dante's part, um, as he's gotten further and further down, um, this, even just the, the way in which he's come to like absolutely accept and it, and it comes out all over the place. Like almost every time he meets anybody now, he's playing the fame card, right? Like he's really come to believe by the time he gets to the bottom of hell, like he's really come to believe like fame in the world is what really matters more apparently than people's eternal destinies matter. Right. That can't be right. Right. That's Dante is must be. Dante, the Dante Pilgrim, must be... We can't be going along with it. We can't be meant to go along with this, right? We can't be meant to be cheering him on. I mean, look at that. Look at the, the picture, right? I, st- I think the picture is fairly... This is, this is a pretty good one, I think, right? Um, and then Virgil. Virgil, who didn't get named, right? Mr. I heard it said that, Right? Uh, now the moral guide, the one who will be right there to help him just in case Dante were to fall into any kind of moral difficulties again, is just sort of standing there. And he's like, hang on, master, I've got, I, 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 I got some business to transact here with this dude, right? Strange. Strange. Okay, anyway... I'm going to let you go. It's getting late. I've kept you too long here tonight. Um, uh, but that's okay. We're getting towards the end of Canto 20, uh, 32 here. We'll wrap up 32 next time. And we will get, we're, get, we're going to do it. We're going to finish Inferno next time. It's going to happen. Uh, hopefully, hopefully I won't have to keep going until 2 in the morning to do it. Uh, but it's going to happen. Um, all right. Uh, so I will... Um, uh, I will... See you next. Now, after I've I've we've talked about what comes next after hell. I'll just mention it briefly again. Our next book that we're going to do is going to be Heinlein's The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. We're going to do some classic science fiction uh, for our next book. Um, so you can start reading the first few chapters of A Moon is a Harsh Mistress. I'll talk about the schedule a bit next time. Uh, and uh, But that's what we're going to be doing. That's where, what we're going to be doing next. And I'll talk next time also about what may or may not come after that. Uh, because I've got, I've, I, I have thoughts. I have thoughts about uh, our further road after that. Anyway. I'll let you guys go. Good night, everybody. And I will see you guys next week. Bye now.